Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville. Local Pride, Global Technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering gourmet pizzas, hot submarine sandwiches, and salads with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com. 332-4495 for delivery. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. The National Organization for Women National Conference opens today in Indianapolis, and so our program today will focus on some issues facing Hoosier women. Joining us in the studio are Kathy Crabtree, the chair of the Bloomington Commission for the Status of Women, and Monroe County Council member at large, Julie Thomas. You can join us on the program at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, or you can go to our website, wfiu.org, or slash Noon Edition, I should say, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So welcome Julie, Kathy, thank you. Thanks, Thanks for being here, Mary Catherine. Hi, Bob. All right. So I, uh, you know, I read about the topic for today: the evolving roles of women in South Central Indiana. And uh, you know, as a guy, I'm thinking we've been—I mean, we've been talking about this for decades and decades. So, you know, what what is there to say? I know there's—I know there are millions of things to say, but but yet, you know, we keep talking and we keep talking. You know how well, Kathy. How do you address that? Well, <clears throat> we have come a long way in the last several decades, um, which is illustrated by the fact that Julie's on the county council, that I'm a female engineer, but we have a long ways to go. There are so many issues. I was looking through a recent issue of the Progressive, and the same issues have been being talked about over and over, and that's why it feels like there's so much talk. But in fact, as I'm sure Julie can add, we've got a long way to go. Yeah, absolutely. I think we still have issues in terms of political equality. We have terms and issues of wage equity. There are issues in terms of equity within the household, in terms of the division of labor at, at home. There is um, there is inequity in welfare, in health care. You name it, we could find problems that need to be addressed. And once they're addressed, we'll, we'll all be a much happier planet, I would assume. Well, let's let's take a few of these uh, separately. Let's talk about political equality. I, it is true that that it's it still seems as if um, you know women are elected to public office in various places, but at the national level, the numbers are still incredibly low. I mean, how do you how do you address that? How do you fight that? Well, the, there was a great study done a few years ago at Brown, um, and it asked why don't women run? Why don't women run for office? And it's and it's clear that this is um, part of a pipeline. If we get women elected locally. We can w- get women elected at state level, and then we can move on to getting more women elected at the federal level. So we have to get that pipeline full of women. Um, and women would say that they weren't asked to run. They didn't feel like they were capable of running. Maybe it's because they don't see a lot of women in elective office. Um, they didn't have the money, and they didn't have the time. Mm-hmm. So those are big issues. Um, and right now we're at um, 17 percent in Congress, under a little under 17 percent in Congress in the U.S. and in the House and um, Senate at the Assembly, we're at 22 percent, mm-hmm. which is still not the 50 percent of the population. Right. We could, we could quit paying taxes. That's uh, taxation without representation, <laughs> really. If we're for over 50 percent of the population or, you know, I know it's, it used to be that way. Right. That does um, only 17 percent represent it. We've only had two mayors, Mary Alice Dunlap and Tommy Allison mm-hmm. uh, in Bloomington, who have been mayors. And, and, you know, Tommy was some time ago now. So, Well, yeah, and I, I want to address that because I, I think that Bloomington, you know, we are – we were talking about this a little bit before the program. I mean, Bloomington is sort of a special place and some issues that women face elsewhere are not faced as dramatically here. Yet it, it seems to me as a longtime observer of the political scene that, that Bloomington was doing very, very well 
in ter- blooming. I'll talk about the city. The city was doing very, very well in terms of having female representation, the mayor, Mayor Allison, members of the city council. And then all of mm-hmm. a sudden there were no women to be found mm-hmm. in city government. And now that we have, what, two Susan and Isabel on the council. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, was, what was going on there? Was, there? was that some just anomaly for our community, do you think? Well, um, the Commission on the Status of Women put out a report on this in 2005, and I'm actually updating it now uh, to get it up to speed. But you're right. In the late 80s and early 90s, we were, um, as far as the number of women who ran and won, were over 50 percent. So there's definitely been a decline. By 2003, you know, we had only one woman on the city council, mm-hmm. and then we had city clerks, so we were less than 10 percent. Now, that's significantly turned around here in the last few years, uh, in, in big part to the, due to the Democratic Women's Caucus. Regina Moore, the city clerk, noticed the decline and wanted to do something about it. As far as why it happened, um, I, I don't know, probably for the same reason that I had trouble getting the uh, – Bloomington chapter of the National Organization for Women Going. Uh, women are really busy. I think we take a lot for granted here in Bloomington. I kind of call Bloomington the little oasis in the middle of the state. And having grown up in south in southern Indiana, you know, I can say that by experience. Mm-hmm. 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 We have uh, we have listeners. I should say we have listeners from you know all over South Central Indiana. So and not even just South Central Indiana. There's Kokomo. There's a translator and. Uh, so we have people from all over. So hopefully they'll call us at 855-0811. Uh, that's the local number. Or from outside of Bloomington, 877-285-9348. You can join us at our website, wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, or follow us at Noon Edition on Twitter. Some of the issues, I think, uh, that prevent women from running for office are, are fairly obvious. You know, a lot of men who run for office have a, a wife at home who's taking care of the home and the children. And um, traditionally, that hasn't been a role then that men uh, want to stop their full-time employment and, and step in and do. So it's a real practicality issue um, for the women and, and those families. So oh, go ahead, Kathy. What were you say? Well, that's a great point. I remember it was on the East Coast, um, a group of women who were trying to get other women to run for office, they actually, uh, if they could get a, a progressive woman to run, they were kind of the mom. They would bake kids for the, or bake cookies for the kids' class. They would pick up the kids from school, all the things that you typically think of a homemaker of doing mm-hmm. for that very reason, because that is a big inhibition for women. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a yeah. It's a it's it's an interesting situation. It seems to me because women, the women's movement have there. It's not just women getting women to run for political office, but there are a lot of issues. And so uh, this, I don't know if this is a good transition to what happened in the last presidential election or not, but I'm going to make it <laughs> anyway. Um, you know, we had uh, the first. Well, not the first. Well, the first Republican candidate for president or vice president, Sarah Palin, on the ticket. How did you know? What did that mean in terms of the evolution of women? Was her, you know, her position on the ticket uh, positive, or did it wind up being a negative? Well, I think it was a positive for her, and I think it was a positive for the Republican Party. But unfortunately, she can be a woman biologically, but she can speak about things that aren't very, in my book, women-friendly. So, and that's one of the things you always have to be careful of is is what people are saying and who they are that are saying it. So, um, I don't I don't think she had the right policies to be the woman who is running for office um, the way, for example, I thought Hillary Clinton did. But um, but that's but it is an evolution in the sense that it was a move a step forward. Mm-hmm. And as Gloria Steinem said, it's worse to have someone that looks like us but thinks like them than to have no one at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, with you mentioned the wage equity issue as another issue, we mm-hmm. talked about some political things, and we can go back to that, obviously. But uh, I know it looks like Kathy's looking up some statistics over here. I'm always amazed when I see the statistics again in you know 2009. I mean, mm-hmm. I've been looking at statistics since I've been editor in 1985 and getting these uh, reports about you know what women make in comparison to men, and it never ceases to surprise me to see what those, what those figures are. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. Um, Bob, as you know, you uh, published a guest editorial that Jillian Kinsey wrote on this for the Commission on the Status of Women on Equal Pay Day, which falls in mid-April, which is the day that a woman has finally earned as much as the man made in the previous year. Um, across the nation, a woman earns 77 cents for every dollar. And within Indiana, 
a woman earns 72 cents for every dollar that a man makes. I, I think Julie can speak to some of this, but part of it, I think, is still there's a uh, not a taboo, but it's not encouraged for girls and young women to get involved in math and science. When I, I'm a mechanical engineer, and I graduated in 1986, and I believe there were about 8% women in the engineering field. And so about 10 years ago, I was doing some research just assuming that that had equalized like you see in mm-hmm. medicine and law, and it was still under 10%. So there's definitely something lacking in the encouragement that we're giving the young women to get involved in some of these fields that do pay more. Right, right. And even though women are earning degrees at the same rate or sometimes a higher rate than men, uh, for example, if you look at graduation rates at law schools across the country, more women are graduating law school and taking the bar than men. However, if you look at the partners in law firms, they tend to be male. Mm-hmm. So it's, sometimes it's an occupational issue. But women tend to be segregated to the lowest paying, um, lowest skilled jobs, no matter what their degree programs or what they have behind them. Um, but it was interesting. I saw a statistic last night when I was, I was reading up to to be here today, and it said that if equal wages were paid in 2008, there would have been 13, $319 billion extra in American women's paychecks in that year alone. Wow. Well, I, I read a statistic this morning on the NOW website that said that for the first time, more women than men are working. And mm-hmm. it's interesting because with the uh, the downturn in the economy, the people that are getting laid off are the people who are making higher wages, mm-hmm. which is leaving more yeah. women in the workforce. Right. Not necessarily at the highest wage jobs, obviously. Right. And one of the issues I had with the um, AARA, the um, America's Recovery um, Act, was – that a lot of the money was um, funneled into construction projects. And if you look nationally, women are only 15 percent of construction workers. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, those kinds of stimulus plans really have to be much more focused on areas where women are um, in, in positions of power or, or where they're actually working. Mm-hmm. Okay. So who's, who's in Washington bringing up these issues and saying, hey, take a look at this. You know, how, how are women being fairly um, recognized in this stimulus process? Well, they're not, unfortunately, right now. Um, I do I do think it's great that we finally have a female Speaker of the House. I mean, how long has that taken? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I, and I think she has been able to insert some, some wisdom into some bills, into some debates in the legislature. Right. Um, not exactly on pay equity, but just on women's rights as human rights in general. We've got Barbara Boxer and then, of course, Secretary mm-hmm. of State Hillary Clinton that are really bringing women forefront into other topics. All right, we have a call. Let's go to the phones for our first caller of the day, and it's Hal. Hal? Hello, Bob. How hey, are you doing? good, thanks. I, um, I'm just, I'll just say to begin with, uh, I'm, I've retired, and, and I'm leaving town after half my life here, and I really appreciate, and I've looked at the role of women in politics, and it just so happens that my wife, who couldn't get a job here, is chair of a women's studies department where I'm going to another home. Anyway, I think that one of, you know, Jill helped teach me about a difference between liberal feminism and radical feminism, and I came down on the side like her of radical feminism, and it doesn't mean who wins office or who carries the day. Because, you know, I I taught criminal justice here for over 30 years, and uh, it looks like people are still trying to redouble the size of the jail since I've been here. And that's been led by women out of the League of Women Voters. And they were people who, like my wife in a way, followed faculty men to IU and couldn't get a job. But I just think there's a little bit too much compromise to think that who wins office is what's at issue. Mm-hmm instead of more radical values like WILP, for example, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom that has a long tradition here. All right. We've, uh, Kathy wants to respond. Al? Um, first of all, good on you for being a radical feminist. <laughs> That's a, it's a good point that there are a lot of men who are, who are feminists as well. Um, just a little bit, and the reason that I think the elective offices are important, not because that's 
solely, you know, where we need equality. But, you know, as Eleanor Roosevelt said, only women in power would consider the needs of women without power. So it's just one avenue to get our voices heard. Mm -hmm. I think Julie might have more to add, but I agree with you. There are a lot of other ways that we can be involved besides politics. And I agree, necessary, but not sufficient. Yes, yes. Right, right. There's a a lot of social inequality that really is outside of the political process. I mean, if you look at something like uh, reproductive rights issues, there's the political side of it where legislation is made or not made and uh, Supreme Court rulings are passed or not passed. Um, but then there's the issue of, you know, some people decide to stand outside of the clinic and, and protest. And that's a social issue. That is a social, um, you know, inequality or a social lack of understanding um, between the protesters and the people who are using the clinic. So um, I think there is much beyond the political. But I think if you have the political as the model as, as what you see every day, as what's in the newspaper or, or what's in, on TV every day. If you see women in power every day, it, it changes the way that I think society thinks about women. I just want to say uh, in closing for myself, then I'll take whatever comes off the air. <laughs> Bloomington has been a wonderful town, and I appreciate the, uh, the role of women in it. Well, Hal, thanks a lot. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that you're leaving. <laughs> thanks. You can still write the paper, though. <laughs> All right. <now. laughs> Thank you. Thanks. All right. 855-0811-877-285-9348, slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us at Noon Edition on Twitter. I did want to ask as a follow-up for you two to um, sort of describe for me Hal's two terms, liberal feminism versus radical feminism. And, you know, Hal said he would fall down on the side of radical femi- feminism. I'm usually not on the radical side of anything. So. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well if, if you look at um, – I, t- I taught at the uh, Gender Studies Department here at IU for about 10 years. So uh, it's probably a good question for me to answer. Um, if you look at uh, radical, it just means going to the root. It really doesn't mean that it has to be anarchistic or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, Basically, what liberal feminism wants to do is it wants to take the pie that exists and re-slice the pie so that it's equal. A radical feminist would say, we need a new pie. Mm-hmm. And it, there's no way to re-slice this pie to make it equal. So it's, it's really saying we really need to remake a lot of things that we do instead of just trying to add to or fix what's already there. Mm-hmm. Well, can you go a little further with that? I mean, how do you create a new pie? What would the new pie look like? Well, the new pie would look like um, an equal pay law that had teeth. Um, instead of the equal pay law that was passed in 1963, which is before Kathy and I were born, and still hasn't really achieved equal wages as we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so really restructuring the way we think about government, the way we think about law, but also thinking about institutions like church um, and, and thinking about reproductive rights and, and all these things. It would just be an anomaly to think that any one person would be able to make a decision about a woman's um, health or her, her, her reproductive future, which includes and impacts her economic future, her educational future, her social future, that one person or one group of people could decide that for someone else would just be um, unthinkable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, interestingly, kind of a, a sidebar to that or <clears throat> an observation, I noticed that they are only marketing Gardasil um, which is a, a, a preventative um, – an inoculation, I guess, for a sexually transmitted disease. They're only marketing that to young women, but it's – you can give it to young men too, but they don't market it to young men. Um, Gardasil is actually a vaccine to prevent – Yes, and, and it's actually um, meant to prevent some types of cervical cancer by – vaccinating against um, a you know, sexually transmitted disease. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And you're right. They're not, you know, men are not. It's sort of like this. I see every about five, ten years, there's a article somewhere that says they're coming up, researchers coming up with a pill for men so that men can take the pill instead of women. And it never goes anywhere because there's just something about reproductive health that tends to fall to women. Right. It's their responsibility. Right. But I think that's kind of an example of, of making a new pie. Yeah. And, you know, having that, that should be everybody's responsibility. And whether you're raising a son or a daughter, you should be equally concerned about that kind right. of issue. Right. I think it's because of the cervical c- cancer connection that it's more focused on young women right now. And, that's, and that would be the reason why. Because men don't have that same health risk for acquiring that STD that women do. But, but along those lines, um, it's a good segue into sex education. Um, as a mother of a 15-year-old son in in the state of Indiana, you know, I find it really disconcerting that there's no law requiring such a sex education. But there is a law that if you have sex education, you have to stress the importance of abstinence. And I just find it 
very offensive <laughs> and also just troubling because, like you, um, you, as you suggested, Mary Catherine, these issues need to be um, talked about with our children. And I think working through our children and the way they think is the way to start changing the pie. Mm-hmm. I think some of us, you know, we're older, we're set in our ways, but, you know, let's start with the children by getting them some good information. Mm-hmm. And shouldered equally between young yes. men and young women. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I've got uh, uh, several questions, actually, but um, several directions to go. The whole term feminism, it seems as if that has lost a little bit of its prominence in the last couple of decades, that perhaps in the 60s, 70s, maybe even into the 80s, feminism was more of a, a term, more of a movement than it actually is now. Would you agree to that? I think that's due to the backlash. Mm-hmm. Um, there were several years and now included that many uh, women are afraid to say they're a feminist because there's so much backlash about it. 10 to 15 years ago, I did a speech in Toastmasters uh, about the F word Mm -hmm. because people are so afraid. But I mean, I proudly identify as a feminist, but then I tend to come down on the radical side. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would would ask students. I would sit in the classroom and I'd say, you know, there'd be 60 students out there and I'd say, you know, and mostly women. Of course, it was gender studies, so mostly women were interested. Um, And I would say, you know, how many of you are feminists and no one would raise their hand. And I'd say, well, how many of you believe that women should make the same wages as men for the same job? Raise their hand. Um, Reproductive rights, raise their hand. And they would continue to raise their hand. And I'd say, well, then you're a feminist. And wow, okay. So I think they've heard there's so much – so much of the culturation that's happened around that word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think that's uh, that takes me even a step further back. I mean, how would you define the term feminist? What, what's it take to be a feminist? And, and I mean, Hal mentioned, and you know, I love Hal, liberal feminist. I think that's, you know, that that seems like a pretty liberal person. And then, mm-hmm. but radical feminist goes a step beyond that. And we already discussed that. But how would you define feminist? I don't know that there's um, that this is the dictionary textbook. Uh, Definition, but to me, a feminist is someone who thinks that women and men should be treated equally. Um, you know, my goal is an egalitarian society. I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. And I had another thought, but I lost yeah. it. So. <laughs> no, I think it's defined really by the person, and that's and that's what makes it a little bit slippery because it's easy to say, "Well, okay, I am a Lutheran," and you could define what a Lutheran is. So, um, being a feminist is is varies by the, the people that do it. They, liberal feminists, radical feminists. Mm-hmm. There there are people that are, um, you know, focused on the economics of feminism. Others are focused on the social side. So it depends on what area you're focused on, and and really, it is about equality. It's about Allowing women the right to be the equal partners in not only creating power but sharing power and the benefits of power. Mm-hmm. My definition is that everybody in the house feels an equal obligation to keep the toilet clean. Yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty <laughs> common sense definition. That's all I'm looking for. I was going to. You don't ask for much. <laughs> Go ahead, Kathy. Um, well, I was going to say too. Back to the whole pie thing. Um, to some people, anything to do with feminists is radical, and I think some people feel threatened because uh, feminist um, feminism means change. And I think of um, the abundance mentality, where mm-hmm. and versus the scarcity mm-hmm. mentality. Mm-hmm. And and I, I had a discussion with somebody this week on travel. Um, this was actually about minorities, but there's some articles coming out about minorities. You know, the, the percentage is you know the white male is is declining, and and that's frightening. And it really can be spun in a frightening way. But I think it's only frightening if you look at it from the scarcity mentality. If you look at it from the abundance mentality, the pie is going to get bigger. So just because women get their share doesn't mean that you, Bob, or, or your counterparts are not going to have your share anymore. Yeah. That's a good point. I'm not worried about it. <laughs> you don't Can I try like to get it. this email in before break? Yeah, sure. All right, let's do that. Uh, it says, how important is the role labor unions play locally and regionally in empowering women? Uh, that's an excellent, excellent question. Um, we obviously are I'm, – I'm very pro-union and um, there are a number of unions around. There's one that's um, working on trying to be formed out of um, – an AFSME union being formed out of Area 10 uh, for the um, BT access bus drivers, which is not going well. Uh, so that's very distressing to see. But um, if you look historically, women have – you think about Mother Jones in Milwaukee at the mm-hmm. breweries, right? I mean women have played a big role in workers' rights because women have been in positions where they've had to be at – you know, they, their children were forced to work in, in the 19th century or um, they were working 12-hour days for, for minimal wages and, and their male counterparts were earning more. Um, unions tend to have fewer women in leadership positions, which is a bit distressing. But I think that's being addressed. I think 
think that is getting better, but it could be much better than it is. Uh, because if women are in leadership in those unions, they're making a lot more of those decisions. Mm-hmm. All right. We've hit uh, time to take a short break. You're listening to a noon edition in our discussion about uh, some of the issues facing Hoosier women in 2009. Uh, Kathy Crabtree, chair of the Bloomington Commission on the Status of Women, and Monroe County Council member at large, Julie Thomas, are here with us today. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, Smithville Telephone, information at smithville.net, and from Mother Bear's Pizza at motherbearspizza.com. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, as well as movie, play, and opera reviews. Find out more by going to our website, WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting south-central Indiana. Listen at 8.33 a.m. and 5.45 p.m. every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to catch that day's feature. If you miss one, that's okay. They're archived on our website, WFIU.org, and the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 7.45. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael, and our guest today, Kathy Crabtree, the chair of the Bloomington Commission for the Status of Women and Monroe County Council member at large, Julie Thomas. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can join us on the website, wfiu.org slash noon edition and send in questions or comments that way. You can also follow us at Twitter or at Noon Edition on Twitter. Um, I was mentioning the National Convention. That's one of the the, uh, things that that prompted us to do this program today. The National Convention of the National Organization for Women begins today in Indianapolis. And and actually this morning on Morning Edition, there was a a really good story about the leadership battles going on up there. And I would recommend that anybody that wants to know more about that should go to the archives uh, or go to npr.org and listen to that, that show because it was really interesting to, to hear about the different people who are running for presidency because the former president, Kim, Kim, Kim Gandy, Kim Gandy is stepping down after two terms and it could change the direction of, of how that organization goes. Um, there are several things that, that uh, come to mind that I'd like to pursue and we'll see how many we get to because Mary Catherine has other ideas maybe. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in charge here. Um, but uh, one is, is – Julie, I want to talk to you. You're a business owner. I business, am indeed. And I want to talk to you about you know, your uh, experiences in trying to start up a business and whether your uh, status as a woman business owner has made any – has you know, been different. It it has been a bit based on what I've heard from men. Now, for example, um, I own uh, Cartridge World locally, and it's a, it's an international franchise. Um, but we have mo- most control over everything we do. Uh, but I went to our national convention, and I saw six other women there out of all the store owners in Canada, North, you know, all of North America, Canada, and U.S. So. Uh, that was a little distressing, but not what I hadn't seen before. Um, not a lot of women will step into that role, um, obviously because there are other obligations in their lives and things like that. Um, I, I find it um, – I, I think the loan process in terms of starting a business where you do have to have a substantial amount of money to start, I think the loan process was was probably equal because there is a small business administration loan specifically for women or disadvantaged women, uh, which, was, which would be helpful. Um, and there are also a lot of programs locally that can help women start a business, which is something we're really blessed with here in Bloomington. Um, but I would say as a business owner in a, um, in a business that's very sort of um, technology-based because I'm, I'm remanufacturing cartridges and we're doing printer repairs – 
Um, that we go out and, and I don't think um, some men think I'm very credible as a technical person because I'm a female. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, sometimes if I send a guy out to do the same thing, there's no question. If I'm doing it, there might be a question. And that, yeah, it's a little distressing and it's, you know, it's part of that cultural shift that still has to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I, we talked a lot about political equality and I, I wonder about equality for women in the business world. I mean, this is, you know, one small example that, you know, you go to a national and international conference and there are six women there. And how many men? Probably yeah, hundreds. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so, how how would you sort of um, compare the experience that women have in business leadership to political leadership? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think it's. I think there are um, difficulties for both for women because of preconceived notions that are out there about mm-hmm. the fact that you don't see a lot of women business owners now. I'm not saying a lot of women don't own businesses because a lot do. And in fact, a lot of women are small business owners. Um, but a lot of those women are working out of their homes, so you don't necessarily see them visibly. But there are many women who are, who are contributing not only jobs but income and tax base to our economy uh, through small business. But when you're in a um, business environment, um, whether you're at a business meeting or um, among other business owners, um, there is something a little bit different when there's a woman in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's true with, with – um, with the council for me, I think it's true because you bring in your, your experiences. You bring your experiences with you. I mean this was the issue with uh, Judge Sotomayor as she's trying to become a Supreme Court justice. People have said, well, she said that she's a Latina woman and therefore she has different experience. Mm-hmm. Well, I think everybody brings their experience and the, and the important thing is to have as many experiences as you can have. Mm-hmm. All right. Our phone numbers again, 855-0811-877-285-9348 and our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. I've, I've been um, increasingly concerned about the image of women in media. Um, <clears throat> I think that it's really taken a disconcerting um, uh, shift into being so superficial and women strictly valued on how they look. Um, and I'd like to have your comments and reactions to that. Okay. Um, well, um, one of the things I, I was uh, teaching when I was teaching at IU was um, we talked about pop culture and the construction of gender. And we're constructing both masculinity and femininity when we, when we have a media. And that can be in the news and it can be in um, advertising. It can be in movies. Um, and we have to look at who owns the media and we have to look at – um, who reports, who edits. We have to look at who is um, asked to do a soundbite on a, on a Sunday talk show. And we have to look at those things to see, you know, why can't there be more women represented? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an important thing because if you start seeing more women represented, it, it, makes, it helps create a change. So what media does is it reflects where we are now, unfortunately, but it also kind of lays the groundwork um, for where we could be. Mm-hmm. So it reflects, but it also impacts at the same time. So it's, it, you have to disentangle those, those two elements when you look at any media issue and determine what are we looking at in this ad? Are we, are we, you know, what are we looking at in this, in this Sunday morning news show? You know, and and to, to disentangle those issues and try to figure out what could be done differently and how could it be done differently. And there's so many layers to it. Um, to go along with that, Julie, I wanted to talk about one of the workshop that, workshops that's being held at the National Conference this week. <clears throat> it's called Square Butts, Date Rape, and Wicked Witches, Confronting Dangerous <laughs> Media Messages. And just a quick blurb about it. Women and girls are constantly bombarded with media messages telling them how they should look, dress, and act. Images of women in the media are limited, stereotyped, and often degrading. We know that these images can be dangerous to girls and women's self-esteem, their health, and their pocketbooks. So NOW has a couple of programs that they do on an ongoing basis, uh, such as NOW's Media Hall of Shame. It's uh, similar to the back of your Ms. magazine that has a no-comment section where they highlight really, you know, disgusting ads that, that really uh, stereotype women. But they've also got a Love Your Body campaign that goes out and tries to just counter because we are daily bombarded. I don't even mm-hmm. buy uh, fashion magazines anymore because mm-hmm. no matter how uh, much of a feminist you are, it's a really strong mental message that you don't look right because you're not mm-hmm. like these mm-hmm. stick-thin women in the magazine. Who are in their right. early 20s. Right. Exactly. Not their teens. Well, yes. and, yeah. and, and airbrushed and in many uh-huh. cases entirely computer-generated, not even real people have been appearing on magazine covers. Some of the, some of the fashion magazine covers have been entirely computer-generated. And so women are constantly comparing themselves with what they see. And they've done studies where they put um, young women in a room, and we're talking uh, uh, 
late elementary school age. And they take a self-esteem test. They rate their, their level of self-esteem. They, they give them fashion magazines to look at. An hour later, their self-esteem is lower. And, and that, that kind of thing is, is really has a big impact. Wow, that sounds like such an important thing for mothers of young women to know. That's that sounds like it ought to be an ad campaign in and of itself. Of course, who would pay for it? Right. <laughs> well, and it, and it should be addressed in school. Yeah. I mean, at a very early age. Right. And, and beyond that, there's a, a rising popularity of shows like. Um, uh, Housewives of Orange County and the various spinoffs um, from that sort of thing. And I have a real concern about how women are portrayed in that. And many of those women featured in those shows are business women, but that's really kind of poo-pooed and pushed aside the fact that they are in many cases actually supporting their families. But it's not what is focused on in the show. Absolutely. Right. I, I, yeah, I, I certainly under, I'm the male voice in the room. I, I agree with everything you're saying, but I don't think it's just limited to women. I think there's a – there is you – know, I represent the news media and I, I – you know, that's one thing. I'll set that aside here. But in the entertainment media, I, I mean I think men – the portrayal of men in, in the entertainment media is ridiculous. I was going to say that that's one area where we are becoming equal and it's not with us getting raised up. It's with right. men getting pulled down. But yes. you're absolutely right. I was looking today at, at – I was in the airport and – the young men on the cover of some of the men's magazines and, you know, everything is about, you know, getting your six-pack abs yeah. and it's all, for, you know, even the health magazines, it's all about mm-hmm. the way you look. So mm-hmm. I agree. And if yeah. you look at the young men in the in the jeans commercials, they look about 12. So, I mean, yeah. that's got to be just as yeah. disheartening yeah. for me. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Believe me. My, my son was 11 the first time he mentioned uh, so-and-so had a six-pack. And so I, you know, I just stopped don't drink, right don't there. Don't drink, don't drink. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And I said, well, do you think, does that then make that person more lovable? Well, yeah. And I'm like, no, no, you know. Well, yeah. it, and, and this really is the sort of the core of what's going on with feminism is that there's nothing really biological about women. Yes, we are different biologically, but there's nothing biological about women that makes us better or worse than men biologically. But it's the social construction of the gender we've created around it. We've defined it. And yet there are definitely narrow, narrow depictions of men in, in media more so than ever before. So the study of masculinity is very, very important in terms of violence, mm-hmm. in terms of fashion, but in, in other ways as well. Yeah. And but but still less narrowly sure. portrayed than women. So. Yeah, I didn't want to. Yeah, you know, no, but that's a good thing. point. <laughs> All right, we have a phone call, and it's John. Or Don. Don. Sorry. Okay. Um, this week on or this frontline episode on the bank failure was very interesting and reaches several of the points that uh, your panel has just made. And one of the things that really struck my wife and I was just how evident the glass ceiling was that. In essence, the uh, frontline perp walk was all white male suits. Um, and the interesting thing was of the uh, people on it, The either there was the lady from Princeton who's on the TARP committee, and other than that, the only people were a few women reporters from uh, either the New um, Wall Street Journal or other news uh, agencies. Uh, and the statement which she just made about uh, the issue of, you know, women or men are probably just as guilty or and not guilty of doing wrong things. Um, but, uh, boy, the uh, really the impact of watching Frontline and just thinking about, wow, what a bunch of white male suits <clears throat> put this country into the present situation that it's in. I don't know what the ultimate answer of you know, issues such as the glass ceiling. Uh, one of the cartoons in Non Sequitur a few years ago was uh, where the CEO is sitting in his office and, you know, he says, well, in this company, you know, we've basically gone progress. We no longer have a glass ceiling. Rather, we have a glass floor. And you look down and you see the women and minorities uh, below the CEO's office. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, it's that sort of reality that... Uh, um, gee, it's it really, in, in you know, my age is 60 years old, I would hope, would have hoped by now that we would have had more progress than what we've had. And, you know, my response to some uh, male colleagues who are, what, you know, basically sexist pigs <laughs> is, uh, putting it bluntly, including some that are 
currently still employed at the university, um, that, um, you know, by the difference of just one gene, um, they are, you know, uh, that's what uh, may have made the difference between where they are and uh, uh, those that they look down on. Uh, but I would have hoped there had been more progress. Uh, you know, I have both a son and a daughter, and my wife and I wanted both of our children to have equal opportunities. And um, I really regret that the uh, Republicans did such a, and the right wing did such a great job of uh, doing in the Equal Rights Amendment as an example of sending into uh, constitutional law that uh, not just in... Uh, federal law, but in the Constitution to specifically state the equality. Uh, I really wish that that issue would come back again. Thank you. All right, Don. Thanks a lot for the call. 855-0811-877-285-9348-WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Do you guys have any reactions? Yeah, to, I'd like to, to talk about the the last uh, point he mentioned. That's an interesting point. Yeah, I, I agree. I was um, thinking, I was hoping the Equal Rights Amendment was going to come up. Um, because it's my understanding that every session of Congress since it was first introduced, it's been introduced. Um, but as you know, it wasn't ratified. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I found when I was doing the local chapter of now is that a lot of young women think the ERA passed. And, and, and I mean, I'm not saying that as a slam, but it's mm-hmm. one of those things where we think we've, we've made it so far. And that's just, you know, the misinformation. How, how many states passed it? 35? We were one short. And Indiana passed Yes, Indiana ratified it. I was remembering three short, but I, one short. Is, one short. Yeah. And, it, and there are ways to bring that back that will accept the previous votes, um, mm-hmm. although it's, it's more difficult to do that um, in Congress. But um, it's interesting because the, the Equal Rights Amendment was first brought up in, in, after 1920, after women first got the vote, by Alice Paul, who helped, a, mm-hmm. helped women get the vote across the country. And it's been introduced every session since then, which is an amazing thing that it's been that long. And, and we haven't come very far. Um, and you could really see like, the ERA was really a, a, um, a clarion call for the conservative right, and it really rallied them. Mm-hmm. And it, it, you know, there were discussions of there would be no more men's and women's restrooms. It would, every restroom would have to be unisex, and women would be drafted into the military. And of course, it was you know it was the mid mid seventies, and people were still very fresh with Vietnam and the draft. So there were a lot of big scare tactics that were really pushed um, through through society, and a lot of those still still actually remain. Yeah, some of them do, but it does seem like a lot of those barriers have been pushed down too in terms of, of what, what the ERA would do. And you know, we're, we're 20 years beyond that now or more. So. Yeah, yeah. I would hope. No, I would hope <laughs> I would so. Hope. Right. I would hope. Um, and I would like to go – if I could go back briefly to sure. what the caller talked about with the bank failures. And mm-hmm. if you look at the Fortune 500 companies, you're going to see very few women CEOs, mm-hmm. very few. You're going to see very few people of color. And this is about how gender intersects with race – and sexual orientation and age and class. And you can have multiple layers of discrimination or multiple layers where you are not the person in the majority or you're not the person in in the dominant power position. Um, But one of the things that happens, and it happens at universities and it happens in businesses, is what we call homosocial reproduction, is that people want someone in power who looks and acts just like them and has their same background and grew mm-hmm. up maybe in the same city. Mm-hmm. And so they, they help cultivate and mentor that person mm-hmm. along. And that typically is going to be the same gender. Mm-hmm. And that's how we end up with what we have. But at least this year in the, with the presidency of Barack Obama, the nation seemed to get over that at least to a degree. Uh, I would hope so, but there was still a great deal of sexism um, thrown at Hillary Clinton. And even the recent um, nomination of uh, Sonia Sotomayor for the Supreme Court, um, there were some critics who called her harsh, for example. Now, you would never hear that word used to describe right. a male judge as a, either a pro or a con. So those kinds of things still exist. And they do in business as well, Um, Julie. um, You know, if if a woman is very strong or assertive in a a boardroom, then she's called a bitch. If Mm -hmm. a man is, you know, he's called an assertive, strong, you know, potential leader. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there's definitely the stereotype in business. Mm -hmm. I think bitch has to be a a name you wear with pride. I love it. That's why I was going to have a a workshop that says, you know, I'm proud to be a bitch and I can teach you how to be one. We can say those things on uh, public radio. 
video. So <laughs> we're proud of that. The, uh, the, the theme for the national conference uh, this year is called "Turning the Tide for Equality." Um, again, it's you know it's a, it's a catchy theme, but what are the steps that need to be taken? Do you think to actually turn the tide? Well, um, one of the things that I think is really important, and uh, Julie brought this up, but is that um, we can't be uh, split apart into different factions. Uh, I was going to mention Indiana Equality, which is a state group trying to get um, homosexuals protected within the state constitution. Um, I think it's really important that, you know, it's not just a women's movement. It's, it's a movement for social justice. And I think that's how we're going to be able to turn the tide. And I think that is happening more and more. We're not as factionized as we were. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think the recent election is is part of sort of – I think the now is trying to sort of get on that wave, you know, and ride that wave of um, progressive ideals that brought Barack Obama into the White House. Mm-hmm. You know, we, the title of the show is something about the evolution of women in, in southern Indiana. And so I think I, I appreciate having reached an age where now I'm seeing my friend's daughters and, and uh, in fact, my bonus daughter um, in professional um, positions now and um, looking at their marriages and um, their partnerships and seeing that, in fact, things have really evolved just in the, you know, since since I was a child. I think Title IX had a lot to do with that. Um, but uh, I do think that we're evolving. It's slow, certainly, but I do think that, uh, and maybe it's harder for us to feel um, we're all about the same age, the women sitting in this room. Um, but I, I think, you know, look look down a generation, and, and it's a, a pretty good illustration of that. Um, did you guys have any comments on that? One was, I just, I mean, I'm encouraged by the callers, both Don and Bob. I mean, to me, that shows a long way that, that we've come. Just They're both, uh, I believe Bob also they were both fathers and you know they That's how I'm sorry. I'm Bob, but I, I you know. <laughs> no. Bob was the I, okay. Well, I wrote down. I'll Bob. give you. I'll give you hope. All right. Too. Sorry, <laughs> but anyway, I, I find that really encouraging. And 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 like I said at the beginning of the show, I mean, we have come a long way, but you know, we're far from there. <laughs> so I don't want to become complacent. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely not. And I think we still have a great deal of work to do, not only on reproductive rights issues. We have a lot of work to do on violence against women and how mm-hmm. widely it's accepted in society and how common it is. And we don't really understand how common it is. But, um, you know, a woman is least safe in her own home with someone she knows. And to yeah. think that that's true today, as it was 30 years ago, is is really a frightening fact. And, and, yeah, just discouraging it, as, as can be. And, and going along with that, Julie, I have to read this one um, segment that's from some of the abstinence-only training that's available right now. And it, it sets a scenario. It says, Rochelle drove Jason home after a party. Then he raped her. Jason was drinking and claims it was consensual. Rochelle has a reputation for putting out. Whose story is less credible? And it says Rochelle. And I mean, any of us that work in the domestic violence and sexual assault field know how common that is Mm -hmm. and that most women who are domestic violence or sexually assaulted, it's by someone they know and trust. So the fact that my kids are seeing this kind of uh, abstinence-only training is really Gender stereotypes yeah. throughout. And yeah. so that's where we can take a step back. You know, these are the kids. So, you know, we may have it good, but it's the next generation going to understand. And we, we've done shows with Toby on <laughs> that issue. And, and they're always uh, extremely good shows, um, shows that I, I think bring out a lot of emotion because it's such a big issue. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's just amazing that it is still with us as prevalently as and, and the way society treats victims of domestic violence or sexual assault. I mean, we as a community have a big responsibility. Um, we are the ones who need to hold our um, judges and prosecutors mm-hmm. and everyone accountable for how they're treating this. This is a serious police crime. Police officers, everyone involved. Mm-hmm. Now, you both have succeeded in non-traditional um, careers for, for women. Who were your role models? Well, I was going to say Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> She's my role model. My mom. Yeah, I, my mom was a, definitely a big role model for me too. Absolutely. Yeah. In what way? Oh, well, um, this is Kathy. And uh, my mom was the mother of five. I was the youngest of five children. And she was a typical, I say typical housewife, but kind of what you would expect. She stayed at home. My dad was very chauvinistic. And she was just the, you know, the typical mom. 
Um, but when I was nine and she was in her 30s, she went back and got her nursing degree. And then she actually got her bachelor's of science at the same time I was getting mine. And she was, you know, killing me with the grades because she got all A's. <laughs> but um, she's just such a strong woman in spite of, you know, uh, an overbearing husband when she was younger. And she's just blossomed. And, um, you know, she, she happens to be – I'm not – she's a very devout Christian, but she is an avid feminist. So I don't want people to think those two things can't go together. Mm -hmm. But she's the one who instilled in me that I could do what I wanted, that my body was, you know, up to me for reproductive choice. And and I've known that since a very young age. I remember when I was uh, thinking about coming to IU for my graduate degree. I was ter- about turning 30, and my mom, I said, Mom, I'm going to be like 35, 36 before I'm finished. And she said, well, you'll be 36 anyway. You're going to be 36 with a Ph.D. or without one. <laughs> and I thought that was so clever. Well, I actually, it was almost 40, but that's okay. Um, but you've got your Ph.D. Does, but it finished. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. And uh, my sister's a business owner, and, that, and that was, it's been good to ask her questions as well. So. Mm-hmm. How about you, Mary Catherine? Um, yeah, also my mom. And it was really interesting, Kathy, listening to you speak. I grew up in um, almost identical situation, youngest of five, uh, you know, very strong. Father figure, not uh, particularly uh, female friendly, and uh, sorry, Dad. And, uh, <laughs> he's not listening. Yeah, my dad's deceased. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, and a very strong uh, mother figure. So I think that we can't overestimate the importance of um, you know the the mother's role in the home and and uh, on all of her children, the males and the females. Absolutely. We have uh, less than two minutes to go, and I want to ask Kathy about the commission for the status of women. I mean, are there issues of importance that you're focused on? at this point? Well, um, you know, we have several topics that we do ongoing updates to um, data reports, which I encourage everybody to check out the website. Uh, One of them, as I said earlier in the show, that I'm updating is the one on civic engagement because we have made progress since I did the last report in 2005, and I want to show that. But also we have one on women's health, education, women's economics. So really it's it's the same gamut and not really just women's issues, but human issues and how they impact women. Mm -hmm. And if I could put in a quick plug for the conference in Indianapolis, if you have any questions about attending, you can call the Indianapolis Now chapter at 317-435-5388, and you can go online at www.now.org. The conference is today, tomorrow, and Sunday, and it's not too late to go. And if you want to meet the new president, it will be announced on Sunday. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's neat. All right, and I uh, recommend that you go back to the uh, npr.org website to listen to a report from this morning about the the battle for leadership (laughs) of now. We're out of time, but I want to thank both of you for being here, Kathy Crabtree and Julie Thomas. It's been a a fascinating discussion. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you both. Being involved, and Mary Catherine. For Mary Catherine, producer Ariana Prothero and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Mother Bear's Pizza of Bloomington, open daily and offering pizzas, pasta dinners, and wings with daily specials. Menu available online at motherbearspizza.com, 332-4495 for delivery.